90.7 FM. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Elon Musk. Invited Don Lemon, who last month was fired from CNN, following a string of gaffes as co-host of CNN This Morning, to revive his career by launching a show on Twitter, saying the audience is much bigger. As of midday Wednesday, Lemon, who have tweeted last month that he was blindsided by the news of his firing just hours after his final broadcast, had not replied to Musk. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. Here are today's headlines. Writers Guild Association strike, May Day holiday in Havana. UC Santa Barbara's Healing Space, now the local school district's partner to address racial bullying. International news from outside the NATO-controlled media sphere and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Press release from the Department of Justice website states a 13-count indictment was unsealed today in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York charging George Anthony DeVolder Santos, better known as George Santos, a United States congressman representing the 3rd District of New York with seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of making materially false statements to the House of Representatives. The indictment was returned yesterday under seal by a federal grand jury sitting in central Islip, New York. Santos was arrested this morning and will be and was arraigned this afternoon before U.S. Magistrate Judge Arlene R. Lindsay at the federal courthouse in central Islip, New York. The charges in the indictment are merely allegations and the defendant is presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. If convicted of the charges, Santos faces a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison for the top counts. A federal district court judge will determine any sentence after considering the U.S. sentencing guidelines and other statutory factors. The FBI is investigating the case with assistance from the Nassau County District Attorney's Office and the IRS criminal investigation. Los Angeles Wave reports that sheriff's deputies involved in two nightly controversial deadly shootings in 2018 and 2020 will not face criminal charges. District Attorney George Gascon said prosecutors could not prove criminal wrongdoing beyond a reasonable doubt in the 2018 killing of 16-year-old Anthony Weber in the Westmont area of South Los Angeles and the 2020 killing of 18-year-old Andrews Guardado and Gardena. Both shootings sparked weeks of protests and calls for a persecution of the deputies involved. Gascon said there was insufficient evidence to prosecute former Deputy Miguel Vega and Guardado's June 2020 death. Authorities said Guardado was shot five times in the back. 
He was working as an informal security guard at an auto shop near Gardena. Gascon stated, quote, this decision doesn't validate the actions of these officers. My heart goes out to the Guardado family, end of quote. Sheriff's um, officials said a 40 caliber semi-automatic pistol with no serial number and an illegal extended magazine loaded with 13 rounds was recovered at the scene. They also said there is no evidence Guardado fired any shots. In a separate case, Vega and his partner, Chris Hernandez, were charged in a federal indictment with conspiracy, witness tampering, falsification of records, and depriving a 24-year-old man of his civil rights in an incident that took place two months before Guardado's um, killing, before the killing of Guardado. Gascon also cited a lack of evidence in deciding not to pursue any charges against deputies involved in the February 4th, 2018 shooting of Weber. Quote, the death of any child is always a tragedy, end of quote. Gascon expressed his deepest sympathies to the family and those who knew Weber. Weber was shot by Deputy Gregory Van Hoosen during a foot chase near the 1200 block of 107th Street. Deputies said the spotted, um, they spotted a handgun tucked in the teen's pants and that he reached for it before one, one of the lawmen, before the lawmen, fearing for his life, fired 13 shots. Investigators did not recover a weapon on the scene. However, a gun believed to, be belong, to belong to the youth was later retrieved in the search of the residence of alleged gang associate. associate. In the lawsuit filed by Anthony's parents and daughter in federal court, insisted that Weber was unarmed. The family's lawsuit also alleged that as the teenager bled profusely, deputies failed to call for medical help in a timely manner or render medical aid. Dr. Earl Afari Hutchison, president of the Los Angeles Urban Policy Roundtable and on-air personality here at KPFK 90.7 FM, said, quote, The fact that Weber did not have a gun casts serious doubt on the report by the Sheriff's Department on Webb's, Weber's killing. Los Angeles County reached a $3.75 million settlement with Weber's family in 2019. In 2018, I covered the shooting of Weber and was able to visit the scene, seeing bullet holes in a nearby apartment building where neighbors and friends were pouring out their loss for their friend and honoring his life with lit candles in the formation of the letters A.W. for Anthony Weber. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. With the ongoing Writers Guild Association strike, Eric Thurm, who, uh, who has a comprehensive article in GQ magazine titled, All About the Writer Strike, What Does the WGA Want and Why Are They Fighting So Hard for It, meets with reporter Dan McQuarrie in this interview. Eric, how did uh, you end up uh, writing this piece? Uh, and, you know, acquaintance of mine who I've known for a while, sort of across a lot of different digital media outlets, uh, just sort of messaged me and said, hey, are you interested in doing something for GQ? We, you know, we're looking for uh, someone to just kind of explain what's going on in the strike. Uh, and I said, absolutely, I would be happy to do that. Uh, and that, that that really was it. It was that simple. It was, uh, you know, not often that that happens, but uh, uh, I feel very lucky that I, you know, got to, to talk a little bit about some of the, the issues. Did you learn a lot yourself about what was going on? Yeah, I, I sort of knew a little bit, um, you know, when this started. Like, I, sort of, I had been following um, the fact that this strike w- was likely to happen for a while, so I knew a lot of the basics outlines of some of the issues, you know, like um, a lot of the complaints around residuals for streaming and around, like, many rooms, um, you know, and a lot of those issues. But I did not know 
uh, among other things, one that like a lot uh, of the past WGA strikes uh, have been specifically in response to new technology and that like from 30,000 feet, one pattern that you can observe by looking at the history of these negotiations is that every time a sort of new distribution technology gets invented, uh, the studios, you know, try to use the kind of unclaimed frontier uh, to squeeze, you know, the writers out as much as possible, and then they have to go on strike. Um, so in, in a sense, like, this really is sort of in the, the lineage uh, of those strikes, which I, I did not realize uh, when I started working on this. From what I understand, uh, uh, some of the sticking points like AI, um, the, the, the uh, studios don't even want to discuss the issue. Uh, so the AI one is, is interesting in that they, there are a lot of, uh, issues where if you look at the WGA summary of the negotiations, where the studios don't have counters, um, and this is one where they did, but in a way that I think is kind of a little more insulting, actually, uh, they sort of rejected the WGA, uh, stance, which was, regulating the use of, you know, so-called uh, uh, generative AI and limiting, like, what it could be used for um, and the, the types of sort of union labor, uh, you know, that the studios would like to replace with it. Uh, and the studio response uh, was that they offered to hold a yearly meeting to discuss advances in technology. From what I understand, uh, this strike is looking to be a lot longer than the last one. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not on the, you know, I've, I've been, I like know people who are in, in the WGA and, uh, have been around a little bit of this. So I, I'm, I'm really, I don't want to, uh, speak for them or, or, you know, in a way that's like, oh, I have a lot of inside knowledge, but it does seem like everyone is prepared for this to go a lot longer. Okay. And I, I think, I think that that's for a lot of reasons, like, you know, on on one hand, I think the studios or, like, the people that are making a lot of these decisions for the studios have just kind of assumed that they were ready to crush uh, the unions and that they, you know, have been, like, pretty uninterested in negotiating for a while in a way that I think makes this outcome somewhat inevitable. But also that the – I think a thing that they – a couple of things that they have not fully uh, grasped – or that, you know, they already have sort of taken so much. Like, people are already struggling to a degree where, you know, I think the ideal situation for them would be, oh, like, you know, the writers get scared that uh, we might lose sort of the little that we have and we'll, we'll come back to the table. Uh, but they already have systematically, you know, made so much progress in trying to destroy screenwriting as a career um, or a way to, you know, sort of make a living that, uh, I think a lot of people just, like, don't have a choice but to, you know, strike as long as it takes. Now, one of the fallouts from the 2007 strike was a large proliferation of reality shows that don't need necessarily a writer or maybe just a couple of writers. I think they've pretty much saturated that market, so I wonder what kind of tricks they're going to try this time to, to uh, cut back on the number of writers that are needed. Yeah. That, I mean, so... I will say I think that is like a pretty common narrative um, that has come out of that strike. And I think there is a decent amount to like complicate there. I, I don't want to like summarize it entirely, but the, the critic um, Emily St. James has a really good sort of rundown of this because she's been covering the industry since then. And mm -hmm. I think the sort of rough way that she describes it, and I, I want to, I, I can go back and check, but I, I think roughly her point is, uh, that people perceived the sort of increased visibility of reality TV as a reaction to the strike when really it was the thing that the studios had already been trying to do that caused the strike to happen in the first place, you know, and that a mm -hmm. lot of the reality boom of the, the early and mid-aughts was sort of already in progress and that that was sort of leverage that the studios were trying to hold over the writers you know, in a in a way that made the strike more likely rather than the, the other way around. In in this case, you know, the nature of streaming I think makes it a lot harder to tell exactly how things are gonna play out 
to some degree, there's a lot of stuff that is already sort of banked, and it would not be surprising, you know, to see the studios trying to just kind of, like, use that backlog, because particularly if you're a streamer, like, you don't have to air things on the regular schedule that a network does. But, you know, I think I think there will be some of that. There will be might see people sort of promoting acquisitions of a lot of, like, older shows, uh, because now, you know, often a lot of the reason that people engage with a lot of streamers is so that they can watch, you know, the, the Office or, or Friends or whatever it is. And I think, you know, that relying on those archives of, you know, things that were made with full, uh, at least when they were on TV originally, you know, had sort of much stronger guild protections. So people will probably lean on that. You know, and, and, and I think they just think that they can, can ride it out because the, the time frame is so long that they think that it will be a long time before people start to notice. Uh, that there are not new things, and I, I'm not sure how true that is. Well, I know there's a lot of foreign acquisitions lately as, we, as uh, the uh, input or output, I should say, from local writers as compensated for by these uh, foreign ac- acquisitions. Uh, that uh, is uh, probably uh, we're at the same point there as we were with the reality shows in 2007. Maybe that's where the push is going to come this time. It's possible. Uh, I think there's a little bit of, you know, stuff to say about that as well, which, you know, I think there are places where the the sort of entertainment and, and culture industries have, like, a lot less union density and, and less protection, but that also those people, I think, will be or are being, you know, the people behind those are being exploited in the same way. I think uh, whatever the sort of labor formation of writers in the U.K., is, is standing with the guild, and that my my hope is that you know other other places will will do the same. But it, it definitely is true that you know it would not be the first time that we we had seen uh, you know companies try to to use you know quote unquote foreign labor to undercut uh, undercut labor. How does the support look there in, on the East Coast? Uh, I think it's been you know I think it's been really exciting. Um, I I only have been involved in for sort of a couple of days of the now like slightly over a week that the strike has been going on but you know i think people are really fired up and i think there is a lot or some degree of sort of misunderstanding or misapprehension about what sort of broader labor support can look like um and then i hope as that sort of clears up more people will be coming out you know like the one the day that i was on the picket line a lot of sort of usual suspects, like, you know, I, thankfully, uh, like, SAG was out and IATSE was out, um, you know, and a, a lot of other unions that are sort of related to Hollywood, but then they're also, uh, I don't remember which one, so I, uh, you know, apologize to them. I, I think it was their grad student union, but the last couple of years, I think have seen a lot of varying degrees of, like, labor struggle that has become a little bit more visible within New York in particular, uh, that I am hoping will like coalesce a little bit, especially because, you know, like I, I said in the, the piece, uh, it is possible that if the strike rolls on for long enough, it will just kind of like roll into the end of the Teamsters contract, uh, the, the UPS contract. We will have the conclusion of this interview tomorrow on KPFK Rebel Alliance News. The Santa Barbara School District is partnering with UCSB to address concerns over racial bullying. Marcy Winograde reports for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. The Santa Barbara Unified School District, or SBUSD, is partnering with Healing Space, a UCSB counseling program as part of the school district's efforts to provide psychological services for black, indigenous, and people of color BIPOC communities. The partnership follows reports of racially motivated incidents at area high schools. Last year, several students reenacted the George Floyd murder by kneeling on a black student's head and neck. Students spoke out at a recent Santa Barbara school board meeting. One high school student told the board, Being a Latina in an advanced learning environment has been the most discouraging experience. I've witnessed many incidents where the kids in my class stereotype my community and joke about being racist. 
The Santa Barbara Unified School District has approximately 12,500 students, 61% Latinx, 7% Black, 31% White. Santa Barbara Unified has uploaded a Safe to Speak Up app on every student's iPad to help them report racist attacks, cyberbullying, or other bullying. UCSB's Healing Space, now the school district's partner, is a training site for black doctoral students. Graduate student therapists learn to develop, test, and deliver clinical interventions centered on addressing racial trauma and improving wellness and healing. According to the American Psychological Association, black clinicians make up only 2% of the estimated 41,000 psychiatrists in the United States and just 4% of psychologists. UCSB's Healing Space is dedicated to helping fill this gap of black mental health resources. The new Healing Space services provided to Santa Barbara Unified students include counselors in the schools between four to 15 hours per week, with at least four hours of those hours carved out for individual and or group counseling rooted in race-based stress and wellness. The assistance includes support with IEPs or individualized education programs for students with special needs, as well as counseling for racialized bullying. Santa Barbara School District Superintendent Dr. Hilda Maldonado said the type of support offered by the Healing Space is a much-needed service. It has become clear that we need to transform how we support students who have been historically marginalized. In response to low reading test scores, the Santa Barbara Unified Board of Trustees has reversed course to approve a new elementary English language arts curriculum based on the science of reading. That's an approach that emphasizes phonics, phonemic awareness, not context clues, the core of the district's past reading program, based on a whole language philosophy that integrates reading and writing. The trustees approved the Wit and Wisdom Foundations curriculum after engaging teachers from every grade level and school, as well as special education experts and literacy experts. The new program includes decodable books called geodes, such as one titled The Library Cat that begins, A bug or rat is no pal to this cat. No bug or rat can whiz by this cat. The first year of training will include professional development during the summer and every month during the school year. The new curriculum will be used starting in the 2023-2024 school year. The switch from whole language to phonics follows a New York Times article in which the guru of the whole language approach, Lucy Calkins, said, all of us are imperfect. Also on the education front, the Santa Barbara Community College District Board of Trustees has selected Dr. Erica Andrew Jonas as the next superintendent president of Santa Barbara City College. As president of Pasadena City College, Andrew Jonas oversaw a $300 million budget. She also served as president of LA Valley College and as a dean at Santa Barbara City College for nine years. Once the board approves her contract mid-June, Dr. Andrew Jonas will officially begin her job on August 1st. Dr. Andrew Jonas holds a bachelor's degree in history from California State University, Northridge, and master's and Ph.D. degrees in American and women's history from the University of Southern California. Her dissertation was a cultural history of American cookbooks, published between 1945 and 1960, and was focused on the ways that cookbooks communicated gender roles and middle-class values in the post-war years. Reporting on Santa Barbara, Chumash Land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. May is CalFresh Awareness Month, a time to increase public awareness of CalFresh to reduce food insecurity by helping low-income families to buy healthy food. This year's theme is the power of partnership as Los Angeles County Department of Public Social Services, DPSS, joins forces with community allies to support and nourish Los Angeles County. CalFresh stretches food budgets to help families buy healthy, nutritious food. Did you know you can buy groceries online with CalFresh? And you can double your benefits with the Market Match Partners all year at your local participating certified farmer's market. 
DPSS reminds community advocates to spread the word that CalFresh Restaurant Meals program helps homeless and disabled and the elderly who are age 60 or over to buy meals at participating restaurants who may be unable to cook. For information about CalFresh, visit GetCalFresh.org or BenefitsCal.com. The Apple weather forecast for this weekend in North Hollywood at KPFK 90.7 FM shows highs of 78 degrees on Friday, 82 on Saturday, and 80 degrees on Sunday. In the South Bay area of Los Angeles, in Inglewood, we are looking at mid-70s for the weekend. And at Compton College, 76 for Friday, 79 for Saturday, and 78 degrees on Sunday. You're looking good, L.A. We love it. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. If you have an EVT card, you need to know about skimming. Criminals rig ATM and credit card machines to steal your personal information, your benefits, and your cash. Don't be a victim. If a machine looks damaged or unusual, check the device twice. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Now for our international reports. Rumors of the demise of the May Day holiday in Havana are, as some, they say, premature. Despite the attempts by the U.S. and the weather to rain on the workers' parade, Cuba did party and with plenty of solidarity visitors from around the world, including the U.S. Don DeBar has more. Last week was a busy one in Cuba, with the traditional May Day celebration taking place, albeit with some adjustments for both the precipitation forecast and the economic effects of what's become the Biden administration's sanctions regime. Also last week, more than a thousand foreign delegates participated at Havana's convention center in an international meeting of solidarity with Cuba against the Monroe Doctrine, which was first declared 200 years ago this December. A prediction of torrential rains for the traditional celebrations on Monday, May 1st, coupled with transportation complications due to a gasoline shortage currently plaguing the island as a result of the U.S. sanctions against Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran, caused the main events to be postponed to last Friday, the 5th of May. Nevertheless, the celebrations did take place in Havana and in places across the nation, extending into the weekend. Army General Raul Castro Ruz, leader of the Cuban Revolution, and President Miguel Diaz-Canel, presided over the ceremony for International Workers' Day in Havana, where more than 100,000 workers met on the boardwalk in the area known as Peragua. As Tuesday's International Meeting of Solidarity took place, Telesur had an exclusive interview with Elaine Fryer, president of the Coalición Martiana, a Miami-based organization that for more than 25 years has advocated for the normalization of relations between the U.S., and Cuba. I was very pleased to see that there were so many people that had shown up in solidarity with Cuba. Uh, the, the, the place where we were meeting held over a thousand people and there were hardly any seats left. Uh, Cuba is not alone. Cuba is not alone. The United States is alone. Every other nation in the world, with the exception of Israel, uh, has voted against the sanctions of the United Nations for so many years. Uh, this is outrageous that, that we're still at this stage after 62 years. Cuba wants good relations with the United States and, and we are a part of advocating for that. But for that there has to be mutual respect. The United States has to respect the sovereignty of Cuba and talk to Cuba with respect. This is my country. I love my country. I want my country to be free of all the sanctions that, that it's facing. Cuba is a place of, of humanity, of solidarity, of love. Cuba does not export war. Cuba does not export weapons. Cuba exports doctors and medicines to help 
countries and places where that is not that that easy to obtain unless it is for Cuban doctors being there. Uh, this is my country. I come to my country no matter what is happening. And I will tell you something else. This is the best time to come to Cuba. Cuba is welcoming people from all over the world. And I hope many more Americans take the opportunity to come and meet this country and meet these people. As the U.S. delegates to the Solidarity events returned home on Wednesday and Thursday, several groups were met and detained by U.S. Customs and Border Patrol in multiple cities. Several Americans traveling with the International People's Assembly and the L.A. Hands-Off Cuba Committee were taken to interrogation quarters and questioned about their politics. A number of people had their phones confiscated. According to latest reports, all have been released. Craig Pasta-Jardula is a journalist who hosts two daily video blogs, The Convo Couch and AM Wake Up. He's an internationally known elections observer based in Florida, and we spoke with him via Skype from there on Monday. So, Pasta, this is your second trip in the last couple months, I guess, right? And uh, you went this time with your co-host on The Convo Couch, Fiorella Isabel, who lives in Moscow and is actually a newsreader on RT. We should talk about this. Well, you know, me and Fee went down this time for uh, May Day, right? It was to understand about the workers' movement there, right? That's what May Day was all about, to get a feeling of like, okay, let me put the election stuff aside. Let me take more in the culture. Let me take more in the whole ideology, what Cuba's been going through since the embargo, since the revolution, how the workers are united, and let me go there. But, Don, as you know, Rage Against the War Machine style, you know, how we're not necessarily with some cliques and some crew that do have a lot of access to Cuba right now. Mm. However, when I was leaving, I saw a lot of the people from these, you know, the People's Forum, the PSL people, the Answer Coalition, that type of crap. People have been doing their due diligence and doing their work and going there, you know, and understanding what's going on. Uh, hopefully, maybe in, in due time, they will, if they can find a way to grow an influence to get that message across, it will be more effective. But right now, you know, at the very least, they show up. They actually were in a room with Diaz Canal. They had meetings and whatnot. May Day was unfortunately canceled, right? Yeah. Now, they said it was because of the weather, and I think they just picked up on the 5th, and they kind of went around the Malacolm, did some type of action where a lot of people, a lot of workers came and sat in. But there was a lot of speculation of why it was canceled. And a lot of people feel, you know, they said the weather was an excuse, but it was a, a beautiful day on May 1st. Beautiful, Don. Me and Fiorell and I went out. We went to the Melicon. Mm. We did some things. I'll get back to that. But they had canceled the day, and they said it was because of weather. I think it was because of the petroleum crisis. Yeah. Because they couldn't get a lot of people from different parts of the country, the Havana, to show a strong May Day because there were long, long, Don, ridiculous lines of people waiting to get petroleum over there. The embargo has hurt, and that is the area that hurts most. If you take a cab in Cuba, when we go together as paisans, we go around – you, got, you can get business cards from certain drivers. You know what I'm saying? I have them around here and everything, you know, whatever business cards from certain drivers and call them to have you pick you up. You usually want to get the guys who have the Japanese cars that are good gas mileage because the old cars that are there, they charge you an arm and a leg. Yeah. And it's only understandably so because gas is high, it's hard to get, and there's a crisis going on. So that is something that is happening over there, and that's why I believe they, they canceled May Day. But you've got a, like a triple whammy going on, too, there, because you've got the embargo against Cuba. Mm -hmm. You also have the embargo against Venezuela, which was providing assistance, particularly with you know petrochemicals, yeah. and also embargo against Iran with the same, you know, this. So, you know, what they're doing, after they shut down their ability to deal with the stuff themselves, they start shutting down their ability to deal with others, too, and it's starting to be felt. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. You know, and, and just to piggyback on that, that was the one thing that I saw that was really, you know, like I said, my experience with Cuba, and I've talked about it before, you don't see homeless people in Cuba. That's right. There is a, a lack of supply chains that have hurt in Cuba as far as, you know, uh, imports are there. And so it's, uh, it, certainly when it comes to food, the, you know, talk to people who are pro-revolution, uh, older folk, you know, in Cuba. And, you know, uh, they have told me plain and simple that, you know, this is the, the hardest it's ever been with their supply chains. And, uh, you know, they're getting less rice, less beans, whatnot. Um, we also talked about the, the, you know, the fact that they shut down the island for six to nine months during COVID. Uh, could that have had effect? You know, can't completely 
blame the Cuban government for doing it. You know, we understand this, the, right. the COVID situation better than most. And, you know, if you're looking at a nation and you're an adversary to the West, what 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 was this really? I don't want to get into tinfoil hats, but is it a bioweapon or is it a real thing that came out of bat soup, whatever the case may be? You had they to chose. consider that, you know, for the, yeah. the government had to look at it like that and prove otherwise, before, that otherwise you get wiped out. And it's like, oh, wow, we should have done this. Well, I mean, I, listen, you want to say it's gambling or not. A lot of people talk about the way DeSantis did it here. He knew in Florida that he couldn't shut down the economy. We'd crush it. So he took a chance and left it open. Nicaragua made some of the same kind of uh, the same type of, uh, you know, gamble where Daniel Ortega said, hey, listen, Nicaraguans got to eat. So Nicaragua is not having a lockdown. So, you know, that kept them afloat and kept them going. So we can always sit there and and second guess play Monday morning quarterback. But that's the position they're in now. And that's what they're dealing with. 4K PFK. I'm Don DeBar. Today's and here is today's international news from sources outside of the NATO control media sphere with Polina Vasiliev. And uh, Polina Vasiliev, she's going to be coming in with the international news dealing with with Russia and the, you know, sometimes we have to look up and see what exactly does Polina mean by non-NATO. So that is something that we all should Google so that we can really appreciate these news clips that that we get from her. After um, Polina, we will have um, a commentary by Pedro. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Mass demonstrations have erupted in Pakistan following the arrest of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. He has been accused of corruption, but critics claim the charges are politically motivated. Protesters in the capital, Karachi, demanded the release of Imran Khan. It's a terrible situation in Pakistan and it's unfortunate that our, our law enforcement agency is behind this, our own institutions are behind this. This is our strong demand. We're not going to leave. All the people have come out on the streets of Pakistan. The government has crossed our red line by arresting Imran Khan. We will continue to protest until Imran Khan is released. Imran Khan must be released immediately. If the government does not release him, law and order will get worse. They have crossed our red line. Imran Khan's dramatic arrest is a slap in the face by the authorities. We don't accept it. Pakistani strategic affairs expert Hamid Khan al-Mashriki says the rallies in support of Khan are likely to gain momentum. There are so many uh, legal discrepancies at the moment, from uh, which has been told by the lawyers of Imran Khan, that we, uh, the charges which has been he has been arrested uh, are not the legal, uh, you know, charges, and they are not even handed over to Imran Khan or anything. The legal due process was not completed uh, prior to arrest of Imran Khan in this certain case. So it looks like that uh, I mean Imran Khan's lawyer and the political movement will take it as a political vendetta against Imran. Khan. And uh, that is uh, going to be very much, you know, we have seen there are so many protests erupted already across Pakistan. I think it's a very big risk uh, government have taken. And if uh, these protests gets wider and gets bigger, there will be very high chance that they will be able to control it. They are very unlikely to control it. Press TV reports Palestinian resistance groups in Gaza have fired a barrage of rockets towards Israeli cities, hitting targets as far as Tel Aviv. The retaliation comes as Israeli warplanes continue to hit targets in Gaza for a second day running. Three senior members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad were among those killed on Tuesday, prompting calls from the resistance groups to retaliate for the strikes. According to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, a total of 22 people have been killed over the past two days as a result of Israeli bombardments, while some 56 others have been wounded in the Israeli raids. The latest deaths bring to around 130 the number of Palestinians killed by Israel so far this year. Israel has closed its two commercial and people crossings with Gaza, a move that would stop the entry of goods, fuel and humanitarian aid. 
May 9, 1945, marks the end of the most atrocious and bloody war in history. For Russia and the former USSR, the numbers of lost lives are in the range of 27 million. To mark their sacrifice, memorial ceremonies were held in most Russian cities. Marina Kortunova has the details. On May 9th, Russia commemorates the capitulation of Nazi Germany to the Soviet Union and the 27 million Soviet soldiers and civilians killed in the World War II, known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War. This year, the victory parade on Red Square in the heart of Russian capital Moscow was held without the usual aerial maneuvers and with a minimum of equipment. With the latest military developments in the Ukraine war, fighter jets, tanks and missile defense systems were partly showed, as they are needed today at the front line. In his Victory Day speech, President Vladimir Putin said that the real war is once again unleashed against Russia, but the country will ensure its security and protect the inhabitants of Donbass. Boundless ambition, arrogance and impunity inevitably lead to tragedies. This is the reason for the catastrophe the Ukrainian people are going through. They have become hostage to the coup d'etat and the resulting criminal regime of its Western masters, collateral damage in the implementation of their cruel and self-serving plans. Vladimir Putin also criticized the demolition of monuments to Soviet soldiers and said the West is creating a Nazi cult. The president pointed out that the desecration of a generation of victors is a crime. It is a crime, an outright revanchism on the part of those who were cynically and blatantly preparing a new march on Russia and who brought together neo-Nazis come from around the world for this. Their goal, and there is nothing new about it, is to break apart and destroy our country, to make null and void the outcomes of World War II, to completely break down the system of global security and international law, to choke off any sovereign centers of development. At 14 I became a partisan, then an infantryman, machine gunner. This is our victory and we have won this memory. We see the depressing example of Europe. I want to say that Russians will never forget this day and will always remember it. Here it will always be honored. I'm from Makeevka, from Donbass. My entire man and family has perished since 2014. Only one son remained, and today I've come here in Moscow to pay my debt to all the defenders, the soldiers of our past and present. For millions of Russians, May the 9th is a lot more than a national celebration. Today Russians celebrate their victory over the Nazis in 1945. The Russians are one of the last who celebrate this holiday officially, remember which side were the heroes and at what cost the Soviets got this victory. The European Parliament has voted in favor of a 1 billion euro package to ramp up ammunition production in the EU to support the war effort against Russia in Ukraine. Critics argue, however, the move is obscene at a time when the bloc's citizens are struggling with an unprecedented cost of living crisis. Jerome Hughes reports from Brussels. The EU's anti-Russia position is conveyed on huge posters surrounding the European Parliament. However, the move to isolate Moscow and its cheap energy is inflicting great hardship on millions of citizens throughout the bloc. EU legislators voted on Tuesday to support a 1 billion euro ammunition package for Ukraine. The EU member states have to put their money where their mouth is. But not all are in favour. Not a war on poverty or homelessness or on climate change, but a diktat to the public of Europe that they have to accept another one billion euros being laundered from their pockets into the fat wallets of the global arms industry. We have been gathering reactions from experts. So can the 27-country bloc afford this additional money, a huge amount, on top of the many billions that it's already sent to Ukraine? they have no choice because they submitted to the US decision because they no longer free to decide because Western Europe is divided. Eastern Europe is totally submitted to the US. Arms manufacturers in 11 EU nations will now be given huge grants to produce 1 million artillery shells for Ukraine during the coming 12 months. The European Union received the Nobel Prize in 2012 
Would it not be better to go for peace between Ukraine and Russia? Now the EU just wants to move towards escalation and being bogged down in war. Security analysts are now pondering how the Kremlin might respond to the relentless attempts to apply pressure. Many lawmakers say EU sanctions against Russia are hurting citizens here far more than their intended target. While an 11th round of sanctions on Moscow will soon be unveiled by the bloc's leaders. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Chant a Psalm by Still Pulse, who are UK heroes that rose from the punk scene in the rock against racism movement and have become one of reggae's greatest bands. The Grammy winners have stayed close to their roots, fighting injustice and promoting positivity through spiritually uplifting music. Here is a commentary on the scholastic and literary editorial practices with Pedro Baez. The literary giant Scholastic, which publishes close to 100 million books a year and has sales of upwards of 35 million, primarily to school-aged children, also licenses and distributes books from other publishers for its school-focused programs, which include its clubs and fairs and education division. Two publishing executives at other companies who have direct knowledge of licensing at Scholastic said it is not unusual for the company to request changes to an already published text. Typically, the requested changes involve removing crass language or violence, one publishing executive told the New York Times. An executive at another children's publishing company that regularly licensed books to Scholastic said that on several occasions, Scholastic had asked for changes 
intended to tone down politically sensitive or potentially polarizing content. Both executives spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss editorial processes that are typically confidential. It's unclear how Scholastic's editorial practices will change in the wake of the current controversy. Some authors whose works were selected for the same collection as the Love in the Library book, which is the book that has basically raised the rankles and crackles throughout the literary field by Maggie Takuda Hall, are currently closely watching the next moves by Scholastic. This is a collection of stories that need a wider audience, said Katrina Hall, whose book, Teeny Houdini, The Disappearing Act, was supposed to be included. I would love to continue to participate in the collection, but I need to feel good about how they're going to move forward. So I'm watching, but I'm hopeful. What has caused the controversy is a line in the book Love in the Library that said the following. It said the removal of a paragraph connecting bigotry against Japanese Americans to current and past manifestations of racism in which Takuda Hall describes a culture that allows the police to murder black people, unquote, and keeps children in cages on our border. That is what's causing the current controversy of this book. Many people in the literary and scholastic fields are supporting Takuda Hall. For the Rebel Alliance News and KPFK, I'm Pedro Baez. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. Join NAMI Greater Los Angeles County for a webinar in observance of Children's Mental Health Awareness Day, May 11th, to hear an overview of what's happening with youth mental health and how it is being addressed at the national, state, and local level. Thursday, May 11th, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Zoom. Go to NAMIGLAC.org under calendar to register for this free event. Check out St. Elmo Village for ongoing artistic activities such as photography, computer graphics, coding, clay workshops, and more for adults and children at 4830 St. Elmo Drive in Los Angeles. For more details, go to stelmovillage.org. Range Projects Gallery newest exhibit is AWOL, absent from one's post without intent to desert, with artist Joan Roby, whose body of work reflects a 20-year journey in response to her mother's Alzheimer's disease. This exhibit runs May 13th to June 3rd at Range Projects Gallery, 3718 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. Opening reception is Saturday, May 13th, 6 to 9 p.m. Call 323-528-6839 for more details or email rangeonslawson at gmail.com. Julia Smith is the curator. Margaret Love wants to see your face in the place Friday, May 19th, 8 p.m. to midnight at Roscoe's Jazz Lounge. 730 East Broadway in Long Beach. For more information, call 562-437-8355. Remember to meet up with Arthur and Westbury native Donna Cooper as she shares her journey as an author of both fiction and nonfiction with insights into the writing and publishing process, along with a look at her most recent novel, A Cozy Murder Mystery, Killer Actress, Thursday, May 11th, 7 p.m. at Westbury Library, 445 Jefferson Street in Westbury, New York. Call 516-333-0176 for more information and find her book on Amazon. 
Join Community Coalition for a three-week pop-up art South L.A. is not for sale exhibit, exploring the complexities of the housing and homelessness crisis. Thursday, May 11th, 6 p.m., Keep Our People Housed, a panel discussion on the housing and houselessness landscape and provide local organizing efforts and policy recommendations with housing experts and advocates. On Saturday, May 13th at 5 p.m., Poetry and Storytelling Night. Both events are at Community Coalition, 8101 South Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. Check out CocoSouthLA.org for more info. African Liberation Day 2023, Saturday, May 27th, 1 p.m. in Lafayette Square Park in Baltimore, Maryland. And this year's theme is Smash Neocolonialism. African people are for, are ready for revolution. There will be an international discussion on May 25th. For more info about the festivities, culture, presentations, and more, go to blackallianceforpeace.com. Black Women for Wellness have several exciting activities coming up for their five-week mental health series starting Friday, May 12th, 6 p.m. at Crenshaw Yoga and Dance for Still and Soundness and Stillness. Saturday, May 13th, celebrate their annual Mother's Day tea. And on Wednesday, May 17th, 12 p.m., join BWW's Environmental Justice Team for their next Tox Talk on Instagram Live about recent cosmetics legislation that governs our product. Later Wednesday evening, reclaim your healing with Rest is Resistance discussion. Next Wednesday for week three, BWW explores spiritual tools for mental health and wholeness. For information about Black Women for Wellness or to RSVP for these free events, go to bwwla.org. Vegan Playground, the go-to weekly night market. Every Wednesday and Friday night in different areas of Los Angeles with vegan vendors celebrating all things vegan, there will be in the Los Angeles West Adams area tonight um, and on Friday. So Friday, May 12th, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Party Beer Company, 4203 West Jefferson Boulevard in the West Adams District and in the Los Angeles Art District tonight, Wednesday until 9 p.m. at Boomtown Brewery, 700 Jackson Street. Visit playground, veganplayground.com for details. Inland Empire Black Worker Center is hiring a community organizer who will work with the operations manager to implement base building strategies, leadership development, and organizing campaigns that grow IEBWC membership and develop grassroots leaders. Also, if you're interested in learning more about a career in the water sector for IE Works pre-apprenticeship program, then check out IEBWC.org for details. Let's Behold program is giving away free bags of organic produce every week on Wednesdays, 12.30 p.m. in Lamert Park Plaza, 4395 South Lamert Boulevard in Africatown. Check out letsbehold.com for details. For no-cost produce distributions taking place at clinics in Los Angeles County, visit dhs.lacounty.gov. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.us. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area online or over the phone, visit latenantsunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News, where KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to voiceless communities. Thank you for keeping KPFK strong and an independent source of music, arts, news, and information. Remember, you can always go to kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735 and follow the prompts to donate. 
If you want to become of our new part of our news show, or if you have a story, idea, or comments, please email at us. Email us at news at kpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you and hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next, Feminist Magazine. I'm Marcy Winograd inviting you to join us for Code Pink Radio, Mondays at 4 o'clock in the afternoon right here on KPFK 91.3.